Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week, hang on, what's that noise? Is it the, the faint sound of breakfast cereals and sedition? I think it must be the Proud Boy Whisperer, Samantha Kutner. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, no pressure, Sam, but the last time you were on, we got the Proud Boys banned in New Zealand. That is quite the accomplishment. I was very happy to see the news and that the collective efforts of people who saw what was up years ago could help contribute to informing government that this was a threat that was recognizable. Now, there were some other, you know, sources listed as uh, that helped inform that decision, but I think it was our interview that pushed them over the edge. What, what did you make of the, the Proud Boy prescription in New Zealand and has it had much of an effect, have you seen? Well, it's interesting because I, I've interviewed Proud Boys, I've interviewed the chairman, I obviously don't release those records at the risk of platforming individuals or spreading their ideology. But when we were talking about the Proud Boys being designated as a terrorist entity in Canada, Enrique Tario said, this is actually going to be great for the far right, because then we'll actually begin to be able to target leftists with the same rubric that they've applied to us. I think that was a lot of posturing, but at the level of, okay, this is a terrorist entity, so things like buying a t-shirt are no longer just buying a t-shirt or being an edgelord, but providing material support to a terrorist organization will likely have an impact. I still think that social media companies, government, and a host of other entities looking to recognize the group for what it is and hold groups accountable still need to catch up in regard to what is considered material support. But I do think that it can be a step in the right direction. I also anticipate, like in Canada, that the group will rebrand. And uh, my brother, who is a brilliant musician, not a counterterrorism researcher, kind of said it very eloquently to me a couple summers ago. When Proud Boys were first designated the terrorist entity in Canada, he said, what do you mean Proud Boys in Canada dissolved? Like some kind of terrorism Alka-Seltzer? Like, (laughs) he really anticipated that, like, what does it even mean to have groups dissolved, to have groups be designated? Like, where does the ambiguity of language kind of, like, meet with actual legislation? And is that legislation effective? I don't really know because I'm not a legal scholar, but I'm very interested to see how people interpret in New Zealand and Canada and potentially the United States, how they grapple with 
organizations that are opposed to a functioning democracy. Now, one of the reasons that the Proud Boys have been designated in Canada and New Zealand is because of their involvement in the January 6th insurrection. You were recently asked with the Khalifa Isla Institute to provide a report to the January 6th committee. In that report, uh, one of the questions that you addressed was, uh, why did they go to January 6th? What did you find? So uh, very much borrowing from their original founder, Gavin McGinnis, a lot of their answers for why they went to the Capitol revolved around optics. Some Proud Boys said that they were there to hear the president speak. However, uh, leaked chats from encrypted platforms show that they were intending to meet together at 10 a.m. at a location that was distinct from where Trump was actually speaking. And so it's very hard to say what any given individual really believed because influence operations and disinformation are so prevalent. However, um, there were people that were caught up in the fervor of the moment and did want to see Trump speak, but the majority of them were fully conscious of their manipulations and were actively planning to assist uh, and took a nod from Trump that they should be there at the Capitol, that they were kind of his chosen bruisers. So it's really a matter of optics and then looking behaviorally based on the evidence that's available to understand what the reality of the situation leading up to the day and on the day really was. And I'm grateful for Bjorn Eiler and Chardon Murray for assisting me in what was a very monumental but worthwhile effort this summer to bring those findings to the January 6th Select Committee. Sam, um, speaking of optics, one person who wasn't present in Washington on January the 6th was Gavin McInnes, the founder of the group. What's become of him? I understand he's had a moment uh, just recently. Maybe you could elaborate on, on his current situation. For sure. I would say that Gavin McInnes is forever trying to have a moment. I don't think he ever fully recovered from being ousted from vice. And I think there was some recognition for him in terms of branding about building a movement almost purely out of spite, but also like everyone involved in the early days of vice, at least three primary figures, including Gavin McGinnis, were immersed in hate literature at their inception from back when they were the voice of Montreal in the 90s. And so the the edginess and the countercultural stuff was always imbued with hate literature. So when when Proud Boys tell me, oh, the group was just a joke or, you know, nobody was meant to take us seriously. There there are people who have from the beginning wanted to spread their ideology and quote unquote red pill the normies. And I think that because Gavin was such a toxic figure and so counter to anything that could potentially secure major funding from corporations, he was very quickly identified as someone to, you know, not necessarily be overtly involved. And so I think what you see in the evolution of the Proud Boys, which, you know, they formed in 2016, and then all the way up to the election, they're still going on, and there's optics have changed. There's kind of like this wound that is never fully healed with creating something and then being ousted from the thing that you created. 
and this desire to maintain your brand, maintain your visibility, maintain your following, even if you don't necessarily have your following's best interests at heart. So recently he was on his show and faked the FBI raiding him. And far right figures who aren't necessarily known for being good faith actors, very quickly called out, you know, this is just a grift, this is just a grift. Even Proud Boys that I'm in contact with for, you know, prolonged contact that's involved with ethnographic research have said, I I, I guess ticket sales were low. (laughs) They understood what Gavin did to be kind of a grift. And then there is a suspicion, or at least from photos that he's in the south of France right now. And there's a whole host of other other things that I would classify as vibes that aren't fully confirmed yet, but the timing is very interesting, given everything that's going on in American politics. Uh, we're we're all going to have egg in our face when it turns out the CIA have renditioned him to you know the south of France. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be something? I guess uh, all of the best political movements, uh, though, are, are formed out of spite. <laughs> Actually, studying. The Proud Boys was something that, uh, at least the desire to continue was something that formed out of spite because I've had personal contact with the man back in the day. In in 2017, I had built up rapport with a member of the Proud Boys and we had gone on to describe the process of radicalization, but we created this analogy to describe that. So, you know, it, it eventually went from Proud Boys sense of humor being the cheap whiskey, it's rebellious to social norms, blah, blah, blah. And then I asked this individual, okay, if you can develop a taste for cheap whiskey, can you not also develop a taste for uh, for moonshine, referring to the more alt-right, overtly neo-Nazi, overtly white nationalist perspective? And the guy pivoted another way, so eventually wound up referring to Proud Boys who had gone on to become radicalized as Huffers. And through this analogy that we built, this proud boy confirmed to me that my suspicions were more or less correct. The group was functioning as a radicalization vector and people who started from just joining the proud boys eventually became involved in more clandestine terrorist organizations and more far right organizations uh, and, and people who had no concern for optics and were very much interested in hastening societal collapse. I brought this to Gavin McGinnis's attention in 2017 as a grad student who really didn't know anything from anything. I didn't know who I was talking to. And then he he wrote this article called Fighting the Media and Academics, where I was the academic and I was like simultaneously an academic and an Antifa terrorist. And then the dude in November of 2017, just a few months after Charlottesville, said, uh, sent me an email saying you're starting a war that uh, you can't finish and wound up trying to go to my university to shut down my research projects, a whole different thing. But in terms of spite, when I saw that email to Gavin McGinnis, having no experience in anything that I was about to get into, my first thought was game on mother. <laughs> Uh, that process you've described of the, the radicalization vector, we've definitely seen that in Australia. A number of prominent Proud Boys have gone on to become involved in overt neo-Nazism. Uh, is that a trajectory that a lot of Proud Boys 
travel on? So the Proud Boys as a project are an outgrowth of the new right. I'm not sure if you're familiar with like the new right and their belief system, but one of their core tenets, uh, Peter Thiel is a part of this as well. One of their ideas is that liberalism as a whole is like its own little cathedral. They actually refer to liberalism and leftist politics and anything that's public facing as the cathedral, as a form of religious fundamentalism where you can't critique anything. And they use that to recruit people further. So let someone, let's say someone who has no understanding of politics as an off color joke. And instead of their friend reaching out to them and say like, hey, I I know you meant well or whatever. I just want to let you know what you said comes from this place and like, you know, do whatever you want to do. But I just want to let you know that's a very different energy than someone they've never met in their entire lives coming at them and saying, you racist, how dare you? Like very much in the shaming thing. Like you, you can't shame those things out of someone's conscious level of awareness. However, I think a lot of people have tripped up and or seen themselves as comedians or wanting to have free speech without necessarily being fully educated or having the opportunity to be educated. And then they interact with someone who's like the low cowl or two dimensional straw man that they've envisioned. And then far right figures like Proud Boys and like Tim Pool and like others say, see, they're insane. Come to us. We're the voice of reason. And that's a lot of Proud Boys intro to extremism. And the danger that I've tried to explain to the public since 2017, when I began conducting ethnographic research, is part of their seemingly innocuous nature is the danger. It makes extremism more palatable it makes extremism more of like this way to affirm your masculine identity and like the chest speeding performance of it. And then where you go from there is often increasingly more radical and not necessarily conducive to actually belonging in society, the world, being involved in communities. It gets into this kind of mirror image of identitarianism, but it's predominantly white identitarianism. And so their, the, their function as a radicalization vector is a very big danger in Western countries where people are susceptible to narratives. They don't necessarily have the media literacy to combat those narratives. And they may have unexamined biases that drive them to embracing narratives without fully considering the implications. I, I kind of say like there's two types, the Proud Boys who have taken that red pill without considering the implications and the Proud Boys are, are fully aware of what they're doing, and they just want an outlet to enact harm against people. You're listening to Yenar Pasaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au, and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Sam Kutner about Proud Boys. Samantha, there's been a number of uh, prosecutions of Proud Boys for their involvement in January the 6th. What's been the effect of those cases on the group and the movement as a whole? So this is from my friend, John Lewis, who's at the George Washington Program on Extremism. Their most recent report shows there are 102 cases. 70 cases are linked to the events of January 6. 17 are charged with assault and 18 are charged with conspiring to obstruct the congressional proceeding. I don't know if they've accounted for Bannon yesterday because that is a very short notice, but 
Bannon was arrested for various forms of fraud for his scheme involving the We Build the Wall campaign. He basically weaponized people's biases against immigrants, against them, and promised to build a wall when there was never really an intention of building one and then defrauded millions of Americans. Didn't he get away with that? I thought he got pardoned for it. Um, Well, Trump pardoned him, but I believe it was the New York, I think it was the the ADA's office who just uh, yesterday actually indicted him. Now, that that build the wall scheme, uh, is that the one that got the butterfly uh, enclosure involved? Yes. And the fascinating thing about that is, uh, I think it's something David Nyward has also alluded to, is there's a difference between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory. A conspiracy is an actual plot by people designed to form some type of influence or outcome or something somewhere. A conspiracy theory is just this kind of belief that this marginalized group holds an undue amount of power. I find it very interesting that the QAnon narratives about there being human trafficking and people at the border that led to a QAnon candidate targeting one of the organizers or people who maintains the Butterfly Center was used to obscure the reality of Bannon and Brian Colfage and a host of other people operating from different LLCs and organizations and media outlets to uh, you know, hide their tracks in regard to the money they were taking from American citizens by peddling bullshit. Has QAnon gotten its hooks into the Proud Boys much? Yes, there. There's an article that explains why that is from the Journal of International Affairs that I wrote a while back called "Take the Red Pill: Understanding the Conspiratorial Allure of Thinking Among Proud Boys." And there are big components that have taken hold within Proud Boys, but that's largely because of the gender dynamics of the way that they get introduced to these groups. So once you, quote unquote, take the red pill and you open your eyes to the reality of female subjugation by women under feminism, a host of other conspiracy theories become more palatable. It's really operating from a perspective of being this eternal victim and life just happening to you and looking for people to blame versus developing like a radical sense of agency about what you actually have the capacity to change in your life. So Proud Boys aren't inherently QAnon, but there is a QAnon contingent. And a lot of that comes from the sense that they are victims or cast out of society because feminine, feminism doesn't have any room for them, if that makes sense. Sam, rather than taking the red pill, uh, people could also take the glitter pill. You host the Glitter Pill podcast. You've recently started an LLC with Bjorn Isla called Glitter Pill LLC. What is the Glitter Pill? So the Glitter Pill started as an inside joke with a small group of trusted people. I was providing training consultations to the Title IX office of my university. And it was this joyful collaborative moment where I expressed this desire to explain the concept of getting pilled. And I had this idea in my head of, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen Forrest Gump, but there's this scene in the movie where Forrest Gump is working with Bubba 
and Bubba is talking about all the different kinds of shrimp. So I was thinking of creating a meme as a learning tool for this legal office of my university to describe what was happening on campus. And in my head, I saw Bubba and Forrest talking about different kinds of shrimp, but it was different kinds of pills. So you could take the blue pill, the red pill, the white pill, the black pill. And then someone in my little collective said, glitter pill, and the name stuck. So it started as an inside joke, like many things. However, it's expanded to embrace value pluralism, being in the society that we're in, understanding that, you know, you have a role to play in activism. But before you go trying to change the world, the first thing you can do is get right with yourself. So I encourage radical accountability. I encourage things that fall into the line of shadow work or like examining some of the more unconscious impulses that might drive people to activist spaces. And I also encourage ways to soothe your nervous system as you do this type of work, because the work is hard enough. You may not have an understanding of how to resolve conflicts peacefully, and you can cause a lot of harm to yourself, as I experienced early on, that I wouldn't want people to go through. So that's the community care element of Glitter Pill. But Glitter Pill as an LLC was something that we founded right after the January 6th Select Committee. At our core, we hope to enhance collaboration across private and government sectors to ensure the highest quality of intelligence products related to violent, decentralized networks. Now, if you asked me like a few years ago, if this was something I ever intended to be a part of, I would say no, my plan was to become a dance therapist. And I I really had no intention (laughs) of being in this field. But you, you, I mean, I'm sure as you guys have uh, experienced, you, you get exposed to so much, and you have so many different unique life experiences, that things certainly become a calling. And for for me and Bjorn, it definitely is a calling to explain to people how online narratives are driving offline violence for the purpose of hopefully preventing that large scale violence that many of us are concerned about going into the next election cycle in America. Speaking of what drives people to engage in politics and activism and so on, I guess a question that occurs to me is, when thinking about figures like Bannon or McInnes or others, how much hold do you think those individuals have? And what are the other factors that drive participation apart from this kind of attraction to a kind of um, daddy-like figure? Yeah, so that's that's an amazing question. In my employee manual that I'm creating, one of the first books I'm going to give to people is Dale Baran's It Came From Something Awful. It really describes online subcultures and this sense of nihilism and also this desire to matter or be seen. I think Gavin McGinnis and other figures, absent of any clearly articulated alternative are really good as presenting as these kind of techno parents that understand what the individual is going through and then advocate for a worldview that even if it's totally incoherent and eventually harms people in the long run, 
is is still the most articulated thing they've ever heard. So having this kind of parasocial relationship with online figures who do things like tell you to read Evola and explain more esoteric components of things have an appeal to people who are genuinely uninspired, turned off, don't really have many offline experiences where they get to experience things like how to deal with rejection, how to resolve conflicts, how to understand that if a woman is not interested, you know, they're not the most evil thing that's ever happened to you. Like there's degrees of nuance that often get missed in online spaces. And I think when a man or woman or trans person is genuinely hurting after an experience, there's always these techno parent type figures available to say, it's not you, it's all women, or it's all liberals, or it's this, you know, this government that we involve in. So like, come to us, we, we understand you. And I think that Trump and Bannon and Gavin McGinnis and other figures are really, really good at presenting as figures who care and are listening to them. What they don't understand is that they're just doing that enough to manipulate them into being what they need as a political tool. And so one of the things that I advocate for and have been frequently canceled for is allowing people to go through their own process of learning and exploring and critical thinking and cognitive dissonance to understand what it is they really want. And then where on these online spaces that they interface with figures have been really good at persuading them into worldviews that aren't really what they want as much as temporarily soothing, like a band-aid that allows them to evade accountability for their actions or just sit with the discomfort of like not having everything figured out, you know? Sam, just returning to January 6th, one of the questions you addressed in your submission was, uh, you know, what were their activities in 2020 and earlier that laid the groundwork for J6? Uh, what did you find that they were working on leading up to the insurrection? In 2019 and 2020, Tario talked about, and he had a very, like all of them, they have a very interesting framing for things. So like disinformation and bot amplification isn't that thing. It's like, quote unquote, aggressive marketing or going into another state that you're from, uh, that you're not from to intimidate people isn't really intimidation, it's limiting government. So it's, there's lots of contortions that people make that sound kind of libertarian, uh, libertarian, but they're truly aspirationally fascist. And in 28, so let me go back uh, in my head. I'm trying to go through hundreds of data entries in my head at the moment, which is probably not going to work out well. But uh, in, in 2018, after the the uh, incident at the the club where Gavin McGinnis dressed as this dude in the samurai sword who was like a victim of quote unquote you know like he was he was a victim of something I, I forget it's a little bit hazy um, the the incident that's put on the radar the idea that the Proud Boys are a gang uh, like a, a violent street gang they were Proud Boys were looking for ways to 
move away from that image, but also garner support. So in the Pacific Northwest region, they started focus testing, okay, what does it look like to travel across state lines? What does it look like to, you know, go to the other states, drain cities of taxpayer resources, but not necessarily enact violence? And so the strategy of whoever was advising Proud Boys or listening to it to direct the group was to go into cities with the understanding that people will, quote unquote, lose their minds because people have or tend to have very strong reactions to fascism and let uh, liberal leaning or leftist leaning people do the work of exacerbating the threat for them. So in 2019, when you look at the incident data, you can see them more or less focus testing and going to state rallies to try to experiment with intimidation campaigns at the local level. So when people look at January 6, 2021 as this new phenomenon, they have to understand when you go back into the incidents, this is something they were building the momentum for since just after 2018 and something that goes all the way back to one of the figures involved, one of the fixers, Roger Stone, who did things that at least rhymed, you know, you can't really say necessarily 100% someone was involved, but when you look at the 2000 disruption of the election results in Florida and you think about things like the Brooks brothers riots you you see things that are thematically similar and a little bit too too common to be merely a coincidence if that makes sense so there's lots of strategy involved and there was this generation of momentum that people weren't aware of i don't think it was a lot on it was on many people's radar that this was what the group was doing at the time, which was really hard for like Andy Campbell and me and other extremism researchers who could see it happening, but still in the public, there was like people weren't believing that it was happening. And I feel really bad that it took an event like January 6th for people to see, but there was a precedent set years ago for an incident like this. Uh, Sam, there are midterm elections coming up in a couple of months. Uh what sort of momentum have Proud Boys been building in relation to that? Since January 6th, they've been organizing locally. And I said this a while ago, but, you know, this, this, the surface level components of fascism are interchangeable. If it's not COVID, it's critical race theory. If it's not critical race theory, it's protecting the children. If it's not protecting the children, it's being against grooming. What I'm trying to explain to people to varying degrees of success that with Proud Boys, you have to think of narratives as tactics. And so the new tactic with Proud Boys is to glom on to anything that has the most momentum. So back in, I think it was January, February, when people were talking about the OK Groomer nonsense, and people were showing up at Disneyland, and then, you know, not just showing those OK Groomer signs, but having like OK Groomer with like explicitly anti-Semitic stuff. Th- there was always this desire to build in QAnon and anti-Semitic narratives into that. But what you're seeing now is people very much like they did in the 80s, uh, conflating being gay with either contagion or with grooming and pedophilia, which is completely dehumanizing, inaccurate, and has resulted in actual 
violence against other people. So the thing that they're glomming onto the most is, is trying to fight against the perception that kids are being groomed in schools and it's completely inaccurate. And they're actually harming kids when they go into spaces with the attempt to intimidate, but they're gaining momentum and they're having far right media figures go along with that and spread known disinformation. And it's not just resulting in real world harm, but there's a certain type of ambivalence about the treatment of gay and trans people that is deeply concerning. And also the thing that is going to extend into the next like midterms and election cycle. Tim, you've this, as you've described is um, a kind of floating series of signifiers to which the far right can be attracted and around which it organises and attempts to mobilise, whether it's critical race theory or the other kinds of things that the far right has been carrying on with for some time now. But I'm wondering in terms of the Proud Boys in particular, or a lot of those concerns are being expressed, obviously not just by you know Proud Boys jumping up and down in the streets, but on TV and across a whole range of media. What's been the reportage on the Proud Boys? I mean, apart from a select few, I guess, it seems to be, given their closeness to Trump, to the Republicans, uh, airing many of the same grievances that uh, many on the right do elsewhere, that they might be supported by or certainly informed by this media. So how has the media actually reported on the Proud Boys, its activities, and especially around January 6th? So in the beginning, to many people's frustration, there was a lot of wishful thinking. January 6th happens, the Proud Boys are done. What I tried to warn people about and many others in the field, like Jared Holt and Amarnath Amar Singham and Bjorn and so many others in the space, and Orrin Siegel, like, is that January 6th can be thought of as a mass recruitment effort and a fight to maintain white supremacy. So not only did the day occur, but footage was cut and copied and remixed and recirculated to create actual recruitment footage for far right individuals. And so that the, the fight has not died down. And in some cases under a Biden administration, it's increased. The, the Imagine the same sentiment of like the election was stolen after Trump in 2020, but magnified so much further under an administration that they feel based almost entirely on disinformation to be uh, illegitimate. That's kind of what we're seeing right now. What what do you make of efforts to uh, combat things like the the grooming narratives and uh, this sort of thing? It seems like it's a, a bit of a losing battle at the moment. Whoever thought of the idea originally, I believe it was someone connected to Ron DeSantis about OK Groomer. They like weaponized identitarianism because originally that was OK Boomer, right? They were able to weaponize, uh, you know, what they saw, what they say, identity politics. I swear to God, I'm not a far right extremist for using that term, <laughs> but they were able to weaponize identity politics in a politics in a way that served the far right. And the momentum that's been generated from that contains general hatred and dehumanization of trans people, along with this complete rejection of anything that they perceive to be identity politics. Meaning like, if I were to say that 
you and Cam only do this podcast because you are Australian. It's completely essentializing and it misses the point of like what you do, why you do, the complexities of what you do. Um, Many people feel like people shouldn't be reduced to, you know, what they do for a living or what they do like only by identity alone. So there's this like kernel of truth that the left refuses to acknowledge and that's being weaponized by the far right who are imbuing genuine hatred and dehumanization into this kind of blind spot in the left. So a a lot of what I've been doing recently has been trying to see, you know, what blocks exist to coalition building on the left, because what we're seeing, as you guys are seeing, is the far right gaining so much momentum and having so much, you know, bandwidth, space, money, time to spread these narratives. And when you look at anyone that can push back, not as organized, prone to fighting each other, picking very strange battles. Uh, And I, I really think that the goal of many people in activist spaces, in my opinion, should be looking for ways to reduce barriers to getting involved in organizing, in counter narratives, in political organizing, because of everything that's on, quote unquote, the other side. What do you think about uh, the way that big tech is approaching uh, this anti-trans campaign? Because it seems that in some cases they're, you know, they're quite onto it when it comes to things like dead naming. But uh, on the other hand, you've got a situation where like children's hospitals are being constantly <laughs> shut down over bomb threats that mm-hmm. are clearly coming out of social media campaigns and they seem incapable of dealing with that. Extremists are very good at, ex- uh, you know, exploiting and manipulating the gaps in existing policies across social media platforms. So I, my assumption across different social media companies is that they're defaulting to whatever legal standards exist where they operate. So, you know, like credible threats against the target might be a way to determine, okay, this should not be allowed on platform. If you're having a picture of a trans person and you're identifying them as a groomer and you have four or five million plus views, is that going to be interpreted as a call to action against them? If it's just their photo, is it like their photo and their address that constitutes as a threat? Something that Kiwi Farms is recently like experiencing the effects of, you know, like at, at what point does it become a threat? At what point should it be considered a threat for like just the greater social good? And at what point it does more nuance and context understanding, like, is that needed? I I don't think one of the things that I try to explain uh, in our work through, uh, you know, Bjorn and I, what we do with, you know, certain clients, which I can't really say a lot about is acknowledge how unscalable the problems are. I don't know how many billions of users exist across social media platforms, but it's not a problem that AI will capture or deal with effectively. Then you're going to get into issues of suppressing free speech. And in countries where authoritarian leaders do have a sway and people expressing dissent could be wrapped up in being considered violent extremists that creates a whole other host of problems. So I don't really envy social media companies in their position for what they have to do. However, I do think that across the board, whatever metrics social media companies have for success should be checked or cross referenced with like what a genuinely healthy functioning society should have, because we're 
we're just like missing the mark uh, on extremist threats and, and violence and the potential for violence and the interpretations of what can constitute as violence and a lot more nuance and complexity and qualitative research and mixed methods and extremism expertise is needed to help genuinely address the problem in a way that doesn't inadvertently suppress free speech. But I think that they're more or less taking baby steps. I just don't think we necessarily have the time to take baby steps, but I really don't know what the alternative looks like in a way that doesn't suppress free speech on a massive scale. I think, honestly, shutting down social media during election cycles might be a very clean way (laughs) to just stop everything. However, in other countries where there are more authoritarian, that's a whole other host of problems. So it's, it's really hard to say, like, do you do you put something in the context of one country? Because that's often going to be like an American centric focus that doesn't grapple with global implications. Or do you try to make things scalable at a universal level? Cause there's always going to be hiccups and misunderstandings and like not even hiccups. Cause you know, there are things that are going to get people killed. Sam, in terms of proud boys and social media, they've been uh, removed from, various major platforms. They persist, they survive. I'm wondering how do they sustain themselves in terms of if you've undertaken analysis of the financial infrastructure of the group and how it you know, merchandises itself, how it monetizes its efforts and how that keeps the group afloat. For a while, they were sharing cash app links to T-shirts that were edgy and consistent with their branding Some of them are entrepreneurs and already independently wealthy to a certain extent. Some of them have fully embraced like the quote unquote dark side where they don't really care about the narratives they're espousing as long as it uh, makes them money. Tim Pool being one of them. Um, There are a variety of ways that bad faith actors can make money. But I also think that Proud Boys, because of their the way that they formed and who formed the group, Gavin McGinnis, attention is one of their currencies. So they might be banned across social media platforms, but if they do something inane and it gets picked up in local news stations and then the local news stations goes to the national level and the national level shares information about their activities, that is more or less keeping them visible and present. And you can't really control if someone looks at an incident like that online that's hit national news and has considered joining the Proud Boys for whatever misgivings they have about what their perception of cultural Marxist or cultural Marxism is. So it's just a combination of bad faith actors with varying degrees of funding. Sam, if you were to whisper into someone's ear something about the Proud Boys and January 6th that you think is really important that they listen to and understand, what would it be? If you are a Proud Boy or a far-right figure that thinks that you are on the right side of history, I would genuinely ask you to examine what you removed from the group before you ever joined, removed from ever becoming a Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson fan. What are your actual values? What do you think gives your life meaning? What is really important to you as an individual? And then examine the groups that you are involved in, the media that you're consuming, and see if there is a discrepancy between what you value as an individual and what you've been led to value or think you really value 
by virtue of being involved in these groups. And if you think that there is a discrepancy and you do think you want to change, but you don't necessarily know the way out or where to go, you are always welcome to contact me or other people in my network. We're not here to convince you to be an anti-fascist or a tender queer. <laughs> we are here to genuinely listen to see where you're coming from. We will definitely call you out on your bullshit because we've seen enough of it in our years of research, but we're not going to not listen to you. And so if that's something that you're considering, if you sense that something's wrong, but you don't really know how to give a form to it, you are always welcome to reach out to me and others. I can't necessarily guarantee that I will respond within 24 or 48 or 36 hours, but I'll do my best to respond within a week or two weeks. And if I can't give you the help or support or listening that you need, I could direct you to people who can. Thanks so much for joining us, Sam. If people want to follow you on Twitter, you're at Ashkenaz89. And people can also, of course, find your uh, full Proud Boys report at the Khalifa Isla Institute website. Thanks for coming on. Thank you both for having me. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll see you next week. See you then. Proud ain't easy to love with their shields and their poles. And they'd rather call you a cook online as they troll. Black polo shirts with yellow striping giving Fred Perry a real bad name. They're reactionary and some think they're scary, but mostly they just run away. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be proud boys. Don't let them wear dockers and get racist hats. No tiki torches and no MAGA hats. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be proud boys. Why can't they stay home and leave good folks alone? Just hang with their bros and their frats. Proud boys are named for a song from Disney's Aladdin. A song that got cut from the film Cause it was so dumb They don't like Islam or the Jews But they call us the haters While they talk down to women And worship dictators Like Pinochet, Putin, and Trump Mamas, don't let your babies grow up be proud boys Don't let them wear dockers And get racist hats No tiki torches And no mago hats Mamas Don't let your babies Grow up to be proud boys Why can't they stay home And leave good folks alone And just hang with their bros And their friends Don't let them wear dockers and get racist hats. No tiki torches and no muggle hats. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be proud boys. Why can't they stay?
stay home and leave the good folks alone to just hang with their bros and their friends. The United Nations International Day of Peace is being marked with a rally on Sunday the 18th of September, 12pm at the State Library in Melbourne. The theme of the rally is Truth, Not War. It's inspired by these words of Julian Assange. If wars can be started by lies, peace can be started by truth. This will be a broad-based, inclusive, colourful and peaceful rally with speeches and music for peace. Joining to show your opposition to AUKUS and the acquisition of nuclear submarines. Take real climate action that recognises the massive emissions caused by wars and arms build-up and to march for truth and press freedom. To drop the prosecution of peacemakers like WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange. For more details, go to Melbourne for Assange on Facebook. Melbourne for Assange, 10 Melbourne, anti-AUKUS, Vic and Extinction Rebellion, Afrisia supporters. <laughs> 